You know, fear in its variety of forms will hit most of us at one time or another. Fear does not come in the same way under the same circumstances to each of us. There are varieties of fears and get different ones at different times. Fear of failure, for example, keeps people from reaching their full potential. Fear of criticism holds some from accomplishing any great things for God. Fear of the unknown binds some to the boundaries of what is only comfortable, of what is only known and what is only familiar. Irrational fears keep some people in constant state of panic, in constant state of disarray. But I want to tell you that not all forms of fear are upfront fears. They don't all come to us at the forefront of our successes. There are fears that come after a great success. There are fears that hit us after great victory. There are fears that move in into our lives after achievements of great things. And that is why God in Genesis 15 chapter 1 comes to Abraham and he said, Fear not, Abraham, or Abraham, that's his name has not changed yet. I am your shield. I am your reward. I am your great reward. Let me just remind you, jog your memories from last, the last message on Abraham. Last time we left Abraham, he has been separated from his self-centered nephew Lot. Now he's dwelling securely Where God wanted him to dwell. But you see, (laughs) troublesome family members will keep their trouble whether they live near or far. They continue to be trouble. Lot's selfishness kept his uncle Abraham on his knees all the time. Lot's self-centeredness kept the peace of his uncle Abraham disturbed all the time and stirred up. Turn with me, if you would, to Genesis 14. There you read about a bunch of guerrilla fighters from neighboring countries came to Sodom where Lot was, and they ransacked the place. In verse 12 of chapter 14, these guerrilla fighters didn't only ransack Sodom, but they also took some hostages with them. These gangsters, the Bible said, they come from Shinyar and Elasor and Elam and Goan. And they kidnapped Lot and his family and Lot's belonging. One of the Sodomites have survived that onslaught and he ran to Abraham to bring him this bad news. He said, Abraham, your nephew Lot has been taken hostage and the FBI would not negotiate with kidnappers. (laughs) Naturally, this magnanimous Man, Abraham, responds quickly. And he goes to rescue his nephew. Verses 14 and 15. Abraham took his 318 Green Beret rescue squad and he stormed the place. And you can safely assume that when Abraham and his 318 Green Berets stormed the place, freed the hostages, brought all the goods out with them... And as they came returning back to Sodom with the hostages and with the confiscated property, you can safely assume that they received a hero's welcome. 
I mean, they had a ticker tape parade of goat's hair and palm branches like you've never seen before. So much so that the king of Sodom said, okay, Abraham, i tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you a blank check. My signature's on it. It is negotiable at any bank. But I'm going to leave the amount out. You write the amount you want. It is yours. Take everything. I want to tell you right up front, had Abraham accepted this offer, he would have been a multi, multi, multi-millionaire. Had Abraham accepted this offer, he would have expanded his ranching operation to a level of an empire, not just a ranch. And the idea must have been tempting. But look at the way how Abraham dealt with that temptation, because it's a good lesson for you and for me. He simply turned to the king of Sodom and said, verses 22 and 23, he said, I have sworn to the Lord God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I will not take a thread or a thong or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abraham rich. Incredible. Now, if you're honest with yourself, you'll know that uh, we all kind of feel and from time to time, insecure about finances and the future and the economy and all of that. And the reason we do that is basically because we don't trust God as a provider. That really is the bottom line. And here he is, right in front of Lot, that greedy nephew of his. He would have grabbed anything, any scrap that, that the king of Sodom would have thrown his way. And Abraham says, no. As if to say, if I'm going to be blessed, I want God to bless me, not you, Buster. Now to compound this incredible trust in God's provision, when Melchizedek appears, from nowhere it seems, Abraham takes 10% of his net worth. Now, are you hearing me? This is not 10% of his income. 10% of his net worth. Okay? And he gives it to Melchizedek. Melchizedek, which means king of righteousness. And Hebrews tells us a king of shalom or peace. King of righteousness, king of peace. No wonder Hebrews 7 tells us that he is a type of Christ. Some scholars believe he is the person of Christ before incarnation. So watch this. Not only Abraham turned the opportunity of getting rich quick by the king of Sodom. He turns around and he takes 10% of his net worth and he gives it away to the Lord. And then Melchizedek opens up his bags and he takes out bread and wine and shares it with Abraham. Thus foreshadowing the cross. Foreshadowing our communion. That the Lord shares and welcomes us at his table. Psalm 110 tells us that high priestly order of Melchizedek is the highest order. And to him, Abraham tithed his net worth. Now, I can't get people to tithe their income, let alone their net worth. I think if we tithe our net worth, let me tell you, let me assure you, let me convince you that if we all tithe our net worth, we'll pay for this building, we'll build the new sanctuary, and we'll give millions of dollars away to missions. I have a nose for these things. When we do tithe, we don't tithe to a person, we don't tithe to a cause, we tithe to the Lord. 
The Bible tells us that the tithe is the Lord's. You see, when I give to the poor, I get the glory. But when I give my tithes to the storehouse and the storehouse gives to the poor, God gets the glory. After refusing the offer to get rich quick, after giving the tithe of his net worth to the Lord, when Abraham gets home, he was totally wrung out. He was exhausted. He just stormed the habitats and the prisons of four major kings in the world. And he did the unthinkable And he's wiped out emotionally. He's wiped out mentally. He is totally wiped out. I want to tell you something. Are you listening to me? You will only understand the feeling that Abraham is going through at this time if you have ever been in hand-to-hand combat with Satan. You really will not understand or appreciate the way Abraham felt unless you've been in real spiritual warfare and God gave you victory. You will understand the drain that takes place after you have made an incredible sacrificial commitment. You might be saying, wait a minute. He had just did all this and the victory. He must be on cloud nine. How can he feel down after all of this? How can he feel down when he's secure, safe in his home and not out there fighting a battle? Let me tell you what someone said. Someone said, cowards are afraid before the battle. But heroes are afraid after the battle. This is certainly true of Abraham in the aftermath of his success. How do I know that? Verse 1 of chapter 15. The word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision saying, Do not fear, Abraham. I am your shield. Your reward is great. The wonderful thing about our Lord is that he knows even our unspoken needs and he meets them. Please listen carefully. Because I want to tell you the moment you and I are most vulnerable to sin. The moment you and I are most vulnerable to temptation is right after a great victory that God has given you. Guard against that. You are not only surprised at what happened and excited at what happened, but you have a mixed feeling of pride and fear. A mixed feeling between thinking, well, Satan comes and says, you did it. And you feel somewhat high. On the other hand, you say, well, how do I know they're not going to come back after me? How do I know that I'm going to succeed the next time? Abraham literally stepped down from the pinnacle of victory and he's about to plunge into the pit of depression when God stopped him in midfall. So God said to him, don't be afraid. Why? Because I am your shield. What does the shield do? It protects you from the weapons of your opponents. It covers you from head to toe. You are really behind that whole bulletproof Shield. Abraham, God is saying, you're under my cover. You're under my care. You're under my protection. I am your shield. I want to tell you, Abraham, your enemies have to get to me first before they get to you. 
Look at the second part of verse 1 of chapter 15. Your reward shall be great. Literally translated would be this. I am your exceedingly great reward. In other words, God is saying to Abraham, you have refused to get rich quick. You have tithed your net worth to Melchizedek. You have been self-sacrificing. You have been magnanimous with Lot, your selfish nephew. You have been generous toward me. Abraham, don't think that all of this has been wasted on me. Because of that, you have me. (laughs) You know the problem with most Christians in America today is? We focus on what God gives us, but not on God. We really do. And even when we come to God, we're always asking. We're always asking. Most Christians in America have forgotten the giver and they focused on the gift. You mark down your 24 hours in the day. How many times you focused on the giver and how many times you focused on the, on the gifts that he's given you? And you have Jesus. You have everything. You don't need anything else. When he said, you have me. Because I am the one who satisfies the lonely heart. When he said you have me because he knew that he's the only one who can fill the empty voids. Because he's the only one who can give joy to the joyless. He's the only one who can compensate the victim. He's the only one who can vindicate the righteous. He's the only one who can supply all of your needs. Verses 2 and 3. Abraham is yearning for assurance and reassurance from God. Now, the natural pious thing after you read what God said in verse 1. Abraham, I am your great reward. Don't be afraid. I am your shield. You would think that Abraham goes on his knees and says, Oh, thank you, Lord. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you, Lord. Guess again. (laughs) He doesn't do that. In fact, all you hear from Abraham after that point is that he was in despair. He said, that doesn't make sense. Oh, yes, it does. Put yourself in Abraham's shoe for a minute. God made a promise to Abraham. Ten years ago. Ten years ago. The promise has not been fulfilled. Now, I want to tell you if that was me. You too sanctimonious for that, but I'm going to tell you, it's me. (laughs) If that was me, I would have panicked in ten days. Where are you, God? Think of how embarrassing it is for Abraham going around introducing himself to everybody. Hello, my name is Abraham, and my descendants are going to be as the dust of the earth. (laughs) For ten years. Hello, my name is Abraham. My descendants will be as dust of the earth. Oh, Abraham, how many children do you have? Uh, Well, (laughs) uh, none really. (laughs) Not yet. Oh, but I have a promise. God promised me. After 10 years, his neighbors began to snicker behind his back. They look at him and they look at Sarah and they see how old they're getting. And they wonder if he really is not having trouble upstairs. (laughs) If he's not mentally becoming disturbed. Well, think about it. Are you saying an 85-year-old man said, I'm going to have a child? I mean, you're going to say, crazy. Even by those days' standards. You know... I was 19 years of age. 
And the Lord made me a promise. And I lacked wisdom that I went out and blabbed it to some of my Christian friends. They were older friends. They were mature Christians, I thought. (laughs) And I blabbed that promise to them. Because that promise happened to be impossible. And I really mean impossible. They began to pray for me. They were genuine, and I don't mean phony, but genuinely were concerned about my mental health. And they went over and talked to some of my older siblings. They said, we are really concerned about his mental state. Some of you have been saying that for a long time, but (laughs) he did not know me back then. I was even wilder then. (laughs) How can I pray for the impossible, they would say. Very simple. You see, I hadn't been to seminary yet to know that is impossible. (laughs) I have not had a PhD then to know that is impossible. God said it. I prayed. I waited for it. God fulfilled it within six months. Amen. What probably was happening in Abraham's heart and mind at this point was the battle was waging in his heart and the battle was waging in his mind. And he said, Lord, have I misunderstood your promises? Oh, Lord, have I just misheard your voice? Oh, Lord, I'm becoming really concerned about your reputation, Lord. (laughs) God's delays are never, never, never his denial. Just because God delays the fulfillment of a promise that He made to you, it does not mean that He's denying you that promise. But you better be sure that it's God's promise, not a promise that you made in the flesh to yourself. Because I hear a lot of Christians doing that. For if it is God's promise, another flesh promise that God made to you, you can bank on it. (laughs) You can be sure of this. That during that period of waiting, during that waiting period, God is enrolling you in the school of spiritual growth, which you don't like and I don't like either. I want to tell you, without the resistance of the air, the birds can't fly. Without the resistance of the wind, the ship cannot sail. Without the resistance of the, of the gravity of the earth, you cannot walk. And God is training you. In the school of spiritual growth. Solomon understood this heavenly educational principle and said years later in Ecclesiastes 3.11. He makes everything beautiful in his time. In his time. In his time. You know, during that waiting period, during that waiting process, we often go through... The following stages. It's not in the scripture. I can't prove it from the scripture. I'm telling you from my personal experience. The first stage is, Lord, what's wrong with me? Why are you not answering my prayer? Then you go to the next stage. And the next stage is absolutely questioning your motive. Why do I want this? And that's good. (laughs) That's very good. But it's not even as good as the third stage. When you begin to Lift up your soul to the Lord and you begin to agonize in prayer. And that's exactly where the Lord wants you to be. That's where He wants you to be. Somebody will ask you, you mean, He wants wants me to agonize in prayer. You better believe it, partner. He does. Trust me. 
When delay occurs in your life and in my life, we give the Lord more attention than we've ever given Him before. I want to tell you something. That if my prayer life is as fervent when I am not desperate as it is when I am desperate, I can assure you that I would be the greatest prayer warrior that ever lived on the face of this earth. (laughs) During the delay, as you pray to the Lord, the Lord wants to speak to you. He wants you to hear His voice. He wants to teach you some lessons if you have a teachable heart. He said, what if I don't have a teachable heart? My God, have mercy on you. Because you know how patient God is? He's going to take care of you. He's going to protect you. But He's going to sit there and say, okay. <laughs> Keep at it. Until you get to the point of learning the lesson that He wants you to learn. He's going to let you wait and wait and wait again. <laughs> For starter, until you come to the place of agonizing before God in prayer. You're not able to hear his voice. There are too many noises. Too many other voices going on. You're not ready to hear what he wants you to hear. So in verse 3, Abraham proceeds to remind the Lord about the state planning system that he knew back in the era of Chaldeans. This is what they used to do. If a man does not have children, he will adopt his uh, chief servant. And his children become his heir. Take the name, be a child by adoption. Eliezer of Damascus, my servant, I'll adopt him. He will inherit me. And this is just as good. (laughs) Very pragmatic. Right? Very problem solver. Right? It's a good way for God to save face. I'm convinced Abraham probably was the first American. <laughs> he was good at problem solving. Man, he understood this management principle before we even were born. Right? God will do it that way. <laughs> Wrong. God is so loving. He is so patient. And then he looks at Abraham and he said, after Abraham tells him about this state planning in Ur of Chaldeas, and he said, Abraham, watch my lips. No! He meant no. I am the God of miracles. I am the God of the supernatural. I am the God of the impossible. I am the God of the undoable people. Why are we here today? If we do not worship a God of the impossible, a God of the supernatural, might as well go to a club somewhere. You will have a son who will come out of your body. That's God's promise. You don't have to worry about God's reputation. He can take care of himself. Verse 6 is a foundational statement for the entire Bible. Abraham believed the Lord and reckoned to him as righteousness. It was by faith, not by works, that Abraham was saved. And then God goes ahead and does something to reassure Abraham. God is being relevant to what Abraham understood all his life. Basically, they go through the normal process of covenant making or contract making of those days. In those days, before they had a battery of 27 lawyers looking at the fine lines before they signed. (laughs) Nothing against the lawyers. God bless them. 
contractual agreements were performed in a certain rituals back then. They would take a designated animal, depending on the size of the contract, and they'll cut it in half, right in the middle. And they will place both halves a distance from each other, so as to be a corridor or an aisle between the two halves. There were several animals and birds that the Lord tells Abraham to go and cut in halves. And what normally happened, the two contracting people, they would walk in that corridor, they walk in this aisle, and as they walk together, each would declare the following. If he broke his half of the contract, what happened to the sacrificial animals would happen to that person who broke it. Now, to put it bluntly, both men were actually sealing that covenant with their blood. If one partner broke the covenant, he would have to be ready to give his life as a payment or restitution. How do you like that for a binding covenant? I'm sure some of you have contracted with rascals back in your days and wish that this law or this custom is back. There was no government arbitration back then. There was no plea bargaining. There was no wiggling out of a contract. That's it. Your life is on the line. But you notice something. If you look at chapter 15, if you really look at what God did very carefully, there is a very, very important twist that the norm of contracts and covenants back then. Very important twist. God alone walks down the corridor. God alone obligates himself unconditionally to his servant Abraham. And that was the sign that Abraham was waiting for. Abraham had no part of the transaction. Abraham had no obligation to meet. Abraham did not walk between the sacrificed animals. Abraham was only to trust and obey. That was his role. And God would fulfill his promises. Well, I'm not through, but I'm, I'm finished. Because chapter 15 closes with the word of the Lord, gives as a final reminder and restating of the promise that he gave Abraham. As I conclude, I will leave you with those words of encouragement from these chapters. Don't be afraid because God is in control. You don't have to be anxious because all things will occur in your life according to God's timing. All things will happen in His timing. You don't have to doubt because God means what He says. Literally. Not figure of speech. Literally. And God's delay is never God's denial. You don't have to live in uncertainty. Because God's covenant is unconditional. It's unconditional. It's unconditional. Let's pray. In surrendering... Of your fear, of your surrendering of the doubt, of surrendering your anxiety, surrendering your uncertainty. God is the sovereign God. 
And he never panics. Remember the people of Egypt were living in darkness while God's people were in the light. That's our God. That's our God. Father God, I pray on behalf of your people and as I join together with them in their silent prayer that your Holy Spirit will strengthen us today as we have this encounter with you that we will indeed throw out the doubt and the fear and anxiety and uncertainty because Jesus is Lord and because he lives, we live also. In his name I pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Dr. Michael Youssef, recently featured on Leading the Way. If you'd like to know more about us, please visit ltw.org. That's ltw.org.